Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder. I'm one of the co-hosts of this amazing show where we really dive into the depths of human, digital, and social transformation. And we're very much on the heels of our first year anniversary. If you think about a year ago today, where were you? What was going on in your life? Was there any change, any sudden changes going on that you're aware of? That's exactly why we started this show. As you probably heard us say before, Af and I were not satisfied by the conversations that were happening around the world in all the key uh, sectors from the unemployment crisis to education to the future of technology and the future of work. And that's exactly what we're going to be double clicking on today is the future of work. What, what, what is that looking like on the cutting edge around the whole world? Um, so I am the, um, the CEO of Invisible Edge and I'm the <clears throat> author of Decisive Intuition and proud to co-host this with Af Moholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Um, a pleasure again to be on this fantastic show. We have a tremendous guest today. So I'm, of course, the co-creator of uh, STL, Straight Talk Live, uh, an important part of our lives now, actually. In fact, Rick, you and I, and I'm also the co-founder of Growth Enabler and a part of a whole bunch of other not-for-profit initiatives. <clears throat> today is, uh, you would have heard us talk about you know, the future of work in the past. Today is something quite different because our guest today is going to talk about uh, a business model and a commercial setup that has um, impact or impacted the way globalization has happened in the world. And it's, it's a seriously important issue and business, I guess, because of the pandemic. And after the pandemic, you've heard us talk about the death of globalization or the resurgence of a new globalism or localization or the morphing of globalization and everything else that goes with it. This business model and what our guest has managed to do with her brand and her um, vision, I guess, is pretty compelling. So you've got to listen really carefully and you must ask some very difficult questions. So I'm going to take the ball the cricket ball. I'm going to throw it right at you, uh, Rick, and um, let's crack right on with the proceedings. It's a good thing I don't know what a cricket ball is. Just kidding. I did live in, <laughs> I did live in India for a year. Um, so speaking of globalization, uh, so we want to welcome our special guest, Nicole Sahin, to our show. <clears throat> Nicole, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Hi. I love this podcast and I love what you guys are doing. So thank you. Thank you. And as we know, you're the founder and CEO of Globalization Partners. Can you give us just a little bit of your background to start with? Um, just how did you get here? What led you to this seat that you're holding now? And tell us a little bit about your company as well. Sure. So just to tell you a little bit about myself and, and kind of what I'm doing in the world, to give your, your listeners some context. Um, so Globalization Partners is a company that has fundamentally changed the way the world works. So whenever a company wants to hire employees in another country, so whether it's the UK or India or Malaysia or anywhere, they historically, they had to go figure out how to set up payroll in that country, how to follow all the employment laws in that country, how to set up a company in that country. And it was a huge limiting factor in companies being able to employ people around the world. So just to give an, an idea, it takes maybe three months to a year to set up a company in another country, which would be required to do before before hiring people in that country. With our platform, what we've built is that instead of companies doing all of that, we have the existing legal and software infrastructure set up in 187 countries. The customer identifies the talent, 
and then put, put the employee on our payroll in that country. So basically, the company avoids having to deal with all the legal tax and HR issues associated with international expansion. They can hire a global team working for them within a couple hours of identifying talent. So from a business perspective, it's, it's like totally changed the game. It's a, it's a big company. We are currently about 400 people. We're trying to add another 500 internal employees this year. Um, we're growing at the speed of light. You know, of course, we think we're the next Zoom or equivalent. Um, but the reason it matters goes back to what Af was saying, which is the unemployment crisis. And if you think about uh, jobs are the most important thing anyone anywhere can have. And previously, you know, before 10 years ago and before the, the pandemic, especially, people were really limited in thinking in their thinking about who they could hire. And now the idea that anyone can hire the best and brightest people anywhere in the world is not only good for companies, but it's really good for people. And it's wonderful if you can hire the best and brightest talent in a place like India, because it helps develop those economies. Instead of bringing that talent to the United States to work, we have a shortage of over a million engineers a year in the United States, companies hiring that same talent in country, it's good for the person's family, it's good for that local economy, and it ultimately works to elim eliminate poverty and, and help the rest of the world develop more rapidly and more quickly. Um, besides my work with Globalization Partners, which to me is really about giving job opportunities to everyone everywhere, um, and we find that inspiring about our work, uh, I also work with multiple organizations to eliminate extreme poverty that are focused on eliminating extreme poverty. We can talk about the jobs, but the, real, the reality is, is that not everybody has access to the digital economy. Mm -hmm. So really, right. really bright people have been had access to opportunity and education. Um, you know, whether they come from developing worlds or not, they, they can have access to jobs, great jobs through the digital economy. But there's some people in our world who just don't have access and the same access to opportunity yet, because there's a lot of people who don't have clean water. You know, I mean, if you imagine during the pandemic, literally not having water to wash your hands, that is a sad state of the world. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I'm really passionate about in my nonprofit endeavors is to to help people who just, you know, we need to level the playing field for everyone everywhere. Um, we have a long way to go, but one of the millennium goals is, is by the end of 2030 to eliminate extreme poverty. The organizations I work through doing that are School of the World. We've built over 100 uh, schools throughout Central America in, in rural and indigenous communities. Um, water for People, which works on bringing water to everyone everywhere throughout uh, Latin America and, and, and very rural African communities. Um, and Give Directly, which is a particularly cool organization that um, what they do is they, they have this, uh, this thing where they're literally dropping cash to people in, in very poor, very rural and very under, underprivileged communities to, to let those people solve their own problems through direct donations. Yeah. Wow, so that's, that's amazing. It's amazing what you've been doing and how much passion and energy and um, you've been at this for a while, it seems like, too. I'm curious, obviously you're handling one of the greatest pain points that you mentioned around the legal complications that give everyone headaches. Um, and even the, just all the international complexities of hiring and every country's laws around that. I, I used to live in France and France alone has their very unique set of laws around employmentship that's so different to any other country. Um, what was it about for you that inspired you to see that gap? Did you go through some personal struggle around that yourself or what happened where you said, you know what, that I want to address that issue. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, I think navigate, I always thought, I guess at first I was an entrepreneur. Um, I set up a business in the Caribbean, which was around outsourcing yoga and retreats when I was very young, you know, early twenties. And for me, the hard part was figuring out, you know, just how to run a business. Like I was really good at the marketing and operations side, but the tax legal stuff was confusing being in a, in a foreign country or even just as an entrepreneur in the first place. Um, if you multiply that times international, I subsequently went and got an MBA and then started with a um, company that we were basically a drop-in consulting team for high growth companies. So for example, Tesla called and they'd say, hey, we want to hire two sales employees in each of 18 countries and we need to get it set up and running in 12 months. I, our team was like the drop-in team who would go set everything up from an HR legal and tax perspective. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that business was that our way of making it scalable was that we would drop in and do it because we were the team who had been there, done that and done it before. But nevertheless, we could never get it done as quickly or as easily as customers wanted to. And we, I was setting up, I had set up like 100 companies in the UK for 100 different com- clients, set up 60 companies in Brazil for 60 different customers. And finally, I just thought, oh my God, if I could just set up one company in each country and give all of our clients access to it, I would have a much more scalable business model and our cl- customers would be so much happier. And, and it would really revolutionize uh, the way the world does business. We have done it. When I first started, I was about 10 years ago. Um, that was not considered a le- This was not considered a legally valid business model. At this point, PwC, EY, you know, big, big companies um, are our partners and refer a lot of business to us because they believe and trust in the compliance underpinnings of our business. We really worked hard to make sure that, you know, from getting government approvals and making sure everything is extremely compliant, that we're ultimately providing a really solid service to our customers. Nicole, I, I have a question for you on the... Um it's like going down a path that we must tackle with you because it's come up in our show. So permanent employment, which I think is fantastic, having a job and a job that you love, of course, you know, because uh, a lot of people don't love what they do. And having a vehicle or a setup where you get, um, you know, your salary coming in. And, and frankly, the employee doesn't care, um, you know, how it, they're paid, but they need to be paid. The structure is is what you provide. And then the uh, sort of the juxtaposition there is um, gig economy. So the you know this uh, whether that's by choice, I, we, I'm almost sort of semi convinced that the gig economy is a great thing, but it it wasn't by choice, <laughs> right? It has me- it has benefits. There's many benefits, but um, it also requires a lot of uh, maturity one as an as an individual level to be able to detach yourself from the uh, regularity of an income right because you, gig economy income today is not consistent predictable income today right. so uh, talk, talk us through what the gig economy trend means to you and uh, it's not about whether you know you're, it's going to impact your business that you know may positively or negatively impact we don't know but talk, talk us through these two forces and what, what are you seeing on the ground? Because you speak to so many people in so many different countries. What is, what is your observation post-pandemic in, in particular? I think that's a really good point. I guess I feel like from, from my perspective, the gig economy is somewhat separate because it tends to be, as you mentioned, a, a kind of like a lower end of the employment market. I mean, these are people who are kind of 
like they're they're not looking for the security usually. I mean, most people who are professional employees and, and professionals and have families to support, they want they want the regularity of knowing that they have a paycheck coming in and knowing that they're going to be protected according to employment laws. Um, gig work is really a way of navigating around the employment laws and, and it works for some people and I think that's wonderful. But I'd say the vast majority of our, our customers and of the employees who work for them, they want the protection of employee laws. And, and like we can say people don't care how they get paid, but they want the security of knowing their payroll is coming in on time. They're going to get their unemployment benefits if anything goes wrong. You know, that they have the protections that we as people have fought for over the last 100, 150 years to, to make employment a win-win solution between um, both the employer and the employee. You know, whereas 150 years ago, it's like, yeah, you just paid somebody, you can fire them anytime you want. You know, we did a lot of work to get these employment protections in place around the globe, and, and it benefits both the employee and the employer. Mm. The gig economy, I mean, the gig economy is anything from a lorry driver in India, you know, who's really struggling to make ends meet, to an Uber driver. And people do it, and it's a great way of making ends meet, but it's, it's not... Um, doesn't give the security to some, some people the way that they want. There's a lot of people who like it because they're doing other things or they don't, they maybe it's a privileged position to not need security. Mm, but more power to those people who, who are in that situation because it gives them the freedom and flexibility they want. Yeah. And I guess a lot of what you're doing is because it's a global setup, like 187 countries. So I assume, uh, just for the benefit of the listeners, that you have 187 structures companies all over the world and these companies they're called x for example or whatever mm -hmm. they're called these companies become vehicles or channels for any business of any size to use as a route to payroll right so you don't have to put up set you don't have to set up costs legal costs time takes a lot of time to get your head around another the, yes. the country i mean i, I speak from experience because I've built a bunch of companies out in India and so on, and I'm UK based. But again, there's a big drive um, on 2.0, 3.0 globalization, where it's going to be all virtual, right? So the opportunity to go re do a recce and look at look at the location and go chat to people, that's not going to happen. And um, so with why I'm, I'm setting the scene is I want the second part of my question is, how are you using remote working and virtual technology in your business now um, to uh, as an enabler, perhaps? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were we were set up for, for remote work, ultimately, in most cases, um, yeah. even even before the pandemic started, just because of the vast global nature of our workforce. Um, so I guess basically, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that besides the legal infrastructure, we have an, uh, an AI-based um, software that's built on top of our legal infrastructure. So for example, whenever a customer wants to hire an employee in Singapore, they have the same questions over and over again. You know, like, like you said, how do I employ this person? Like, is this person care more about this benefit or that benefit? You know, do they want health insurance or do they need a pension? And so basically our software guides the customer through that, um, articulates like, negotiating with the employee and things like what type of benefits to offer. And then the customer drops into the employment contract, the terms that they want to offer to the candidate, choosing from our pre-selected benefits plans. So it kind of, you know, uses all of that. I'd say in terms of a digital remote working tool, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess any any type of software, any type of Zoom, that type of thing, we're, we're using all all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, less in the digital digital universities um, through through online training programs and that type of thing. I think that's just uh, table stakes for any organization that is going global in today's economy because you can't have. Right now, with the pandemic, you can't have people flying around the globe all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you also get involved in hiring? Uh, so, like, uh, is it like a do you do recruit turnkey recruitment as well, or is it just give me the recruit, give me the recruit, pick them, and then you can put them through my structure? Yeah. So we we do not personally get involved in recruiting, but in Q three July, we, we actually are planning to launch a recruiting platform through our software. That plugs right. clients into recruiting, best of, best of class recruiting around the globe, just to make it easier. Because yeah. I think the number one barrier to going global it was the legal HR and tax issues just being so complicated. Yeah. So now that we've flattened those barriers, it's like, what's the next barrier? And I think yeah. the next thing is people. It's it's ner- it, it makes you nervous. You know, it's always like <laughs> if I hire somebody in the UK. How do I know? Like I haven't trained them in my headquarters office. How do I know that they're going to carry the company mantle and care mm-hmm. care about this business as much as I do? Mm-hmm. And what I found is like, because we did this ourselves, you know, at first we hired our headquarters team in, in, in a few key locations, people that we knew. Of course, you, you expand beyond the people you know to build a business mm-hmm. pretty quickly, you know, your own mm-hmm. network. And then we had to start hiring people we didn't know in countries all over the globe. Yeah. Of course. And so basically... What I found is that when you hire local people in country, they, first of all, you interview and meet them and, and feel the same bond through them through video technology that you would interviewing somebody in person. It's not a hundred percent, but you can get pretty darn close. We've hired t- over 200 people, probably 300 people, I think, actually, since the beginning of the pandemic that we have never met in person for our own internal team. Mm-hmm. They have, and like, it like people can take the ball so much further by being local talent in country. It also opens up, you know, it can open up new markets for companies. So new salespeople around the globe that they weren't planning to target this country or that country until, until a different time can change the cost structure of a company. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of our customers are hiring people in, in like the South, whereas they used to hire all their employees in the Bay area or, or Boston or, um, we have people using it for cost cutting, you know, means. So for example, um, we have companies that are headquartered in London who are hiring teams in Eastern Europe and, and other locations where they can hire the same talent at a lower cost and save some of their higher cost jobs or in market jobs for, for different types of talent. So I'd say this is just completely exploding right now. Yeah. And, and you're really hitting on a good point around trust. And this is something that I've come up against a lot, working with a lot of different executives and companies right now that are going through similar challenges around, well, how do we trust and hire key people that we've never met? We've never had that somatic experience in the room of really that feeling, having that real handshake and having that, or even if today's it's like elbow to elbow, but even just having that like in-person connection where you really get that sense and all the nonverbal communication that happens in that experience, or you go out to lunch, you, you get to know each other in a different way. Um, and yet people are having to make these decisions. Um, they're forced to by the circumstances today. And I'm seeing some companies that are still reticent about the trust around that. And how do we let in some of those key stakeholders into our strategic conversations versus the ones that are just getting, hey, this is adaptability. This is today's world. This is what mm-hmm. we have to do. Um, anything that you would want to say to that for anyone listening in our audience right now who might be in that situation where they're still perhaps yeah. struggling around the trust yeah. issues around uh, remote work and what have you? 
I guess I've been, I guess my main thing is empathy because I've been there and um, kind of worked through it. But I guess my words of wisdom are first necessity is a mother. You're going to have to do it anyway. And yeah. all your competitors yeah. are doing it. And like, if you don't, you're kind of behind the curve. So I guess from a just tactical perspective, take the leap, but from an emotional perspective, which is obviously critical and important. Um, I mean, just in my experience, again, like I have, I have hired the most magnificent people that I've learned so much from all over the globe that have blown my mind with their brilliance, creativity, dedication, and ingenuity, and people I've literally never met in person. When I finally did meet them in person, it was a joy and like a lot of fun, but they weren't, it wasn't like somebody came out of the closet, you know, and like, you know, like a surprise. (laughs) And Unfortunately, you know, you can, you can get the same, you can actually pick up, I think the same negative vibes or this person's going to be a troublemaker through the interview process that you do virtually as compared to, and as you do in person. And I think ignore that at your peril internationally or anywhere. Yeah. So when you first saw Af right now, were you thinking troublemaker, (laughs) total, (laughs) total troublemaker? You were right. You were right. Your intuition is spot on. Yeah. <laughs> she was like this, this she was like this guy's a genius um have you i was i was just messing with her. i was thinking have you maybe there'll be a time when we'll meet someone virtually and then we'll be underwhelmed when we meet them physically oh that happens that can happen for sure yeah i'm yeah. sure sure so, uh, so one, one of the coolest things I think in your position right now is that you're getting to really see a lot of the trends of technology and how that interfaces around the whole world and how different countries are adapting to the current times. What are some of the things that you're seeing on the, on the leading edge there just in how uh, the future of work is really transforming as we speak and how it's affecting society as we know? Oh my God. Well, fabulous question. I, I, it is exciting. I mean, I think we are... You know, we, I always felt like we were at the forefront of futurism technology and people integrating around the globe um, from a cultural perspective, like people getting to know each other so much better. Um, but, but now the pandemic really, really propelled us all forward about 10 years. And in terms of actually having to adopt some of the technology that makes remote and digital work and global work possible. So I guess the trends that I'm, that I would predict, one, I think is, um, the birth of, of deeper global empathy, you know? And I think that when you see people around the globe who look different from you and they're your colleagues every day and you bond with them and they're working as hard as you are and you're all working on some shared collaborative mission, but then you see something that on the news would have scared the daylights out of you. Um, and you realize this person is human and a wonderful person just like you who cares about their family just like you that really breaks down that barrier of not caring about that person's life or being able to go to war, for example, with, with that country. So yeah. just to give you an example um, that I like to use, I had a, I had a customer in Dallas who had a, uh, an employee in Qatar that they worked with every day. It was a salesperson and uh, they had a very good relationship with this person. And one day the guy's wife walked by on the video call and she was covered head to toe with her face cover. Mm-hmm. And he told me, you know, it freaked him out at first because, you know, he thought that people who who forced women to be covered or countries where women were covered were disrespectful of women. And, and um, you know, he, I don't know what he thought, but basically I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. And yet this person talked so lovingly about his wife and his family. He picked his kids up from soccer every day and he was very obviously a family man. So it was just that jarring moment that like 
oh, the expectation of what I thought about people like that versus my colleague and friend, it kind of broke down that barrier of, so, so that's one thing. Mm. Okay, it's like this birth of uh, understanding what other people's lives are like and that we're more alike than we are different. Mm. Another thing, um, okay, more tactically, I would say that like, you know, cities, um, people like living in cities because it's fun, but in the future, um, I think people will live in the cities because, or not because they have to be close to work, but because they want to. And people will kind of, the, the spread of the wealth all over the globe. So like the rise of the rest. So the rise of the South where people want to live because it's warm and people are nice. The rise of places like Ohio and Cincinnati, the rise of Mexico, where there's 13% of the population is completely fluent in English and highly educated um, and, and very, very capable of doing, doing as good of work as places, as many people in the United States, um, where, where jobs are also going to come and that those jobs, the money from those jobs will stay in those local economies and help, help uh, stimulate other economies besides just the Silicon Valley in Boston. Mm -hmm. Can you um, can you go back to um, the global empathy piece because I think that's quite an interesting one. What what is it about um, virtual then that you believe is different to before we were doing this? Mm -hmm. Is it speed? Is it the instant nature of working with so many different people at the same time? Like look at this. I mean, we have we represent three continents give or take um and who you know our, our audience is global i mean we have people from all over the place so multiple continents being represented on one call um so what is it about that example when you talked about the chat from dallas and then the guy from qatar and so on um, what is that um what's your view on it what why does that happen and how will it happen more what do we need to do something or do we, is it our responsibility to to step up and make that first point become more real Oh, I think it's happening. I think it's happening already. Um, so I don't think there's anything we need to do, but but key things I would say, key things that we can, I think it's going to happen whether we want it to or not, but it's happening. Um, but key things that we can do to make it more human, I think having video on all, so, so the reason it's happening now, let's start there, is because companies used to have to hire within the commuting radius of their head, of their office location. So right. everybody has to go to the office every day, you know, you have yeah. to do that. Also, everybody gets the same one inch uh, of screen space on a Zoom call. And I personally have loved that because our all hands meetings used to be me talking to our Boston office and streaming to the rest of the world. And I was talking mostly to my Boston team and seeing their reactions. Now everybody, you know, from, from the most junior, most junior person in the company to my executive VP gets the same one inch of Zoom space. And I can see all their faces. They all have the same opportunity to ask questions. It's the democratization of the workforce. You know, mm -hmm. not everything going up through this hierarchical mm -hmm. chain uh, or, or geolocated chain. Mm -hmm. In terms of how do we make the empathy greater? And personally, I think that ties a lot to the company culture. Uh, and what makes, what makes work rewarding for people is that human connection. Yeah, one policy we have is video on all the time. I don't think we're unique yeah. in that, but that's critical to improving cross-cultural bonding. And um, let's see, other things in that, I mean, it's just like team events. I mean, things like people sharing a little bit of their life from around the globe. I mean, mm -hmm. we had a, a woman from Singapore who posted a video and she said, this is my neighborhood. You know, all the apartment buildings in Singapore look the same. And that has to do with the way our government started and 
you know, all these things, but just to see a, a little video snap of her life and like how she lives in the noodle shop where she goes for dinner, you know, with her family sometimes it was like, Oh, this is really cute. It was like virtual traveling, but also getting to know somebody's yeah. life um, mm-hmm. in a way that's really yeah. cool. And, and unique. You know, I've seen this too, Nicole, where even the team that I'm on right now, um, it started with this idea of MTV cribs. If anyone remembers back in the day where MTV would show you your house and you get to, you know, a flash of some celebrity and everyone would get to see how they live. So we started doing that internally where you get to show your zoom, you know, computer around your house. If you want to do it, it's optional, but you get to show like, Hey, here's my living situation. You get to know more about each person you're working with more closely. Or as you're saying, if you want to go down the neighborhood or something like that, or the local coffee shop, um, and how that does bring people closer together beyond just the screen. You're seeing the cultural milieu that they come from. And so that mm-hmm. is bringing people closer together in ways that we couldn't have done before in the same mm. way. That's a great, that's a great point. We'll, we'll steal that point on the real estate, uh, the square, because actually <laughs> it's a quite an important point because if you think about cultural hierarchies, they're usually unsaid, right? And, and even, uh, yeah, you make a point about the broadcasting versus interactivity, but actually this square, it's the same size. There is, there is an inference there. There is an inference, clear inference there that I belong. And then I, I get the same real estate, the same video space as, as my boss's boss's boss. And, and that's, a, that's a very good point. The other thing I think uh, to your point and that we'll practice, practice a little bit more is um, in the old days when the boss used to call the, the, the team members to his or her house, it was generally your directs, your direct reports, right? And there was a certain cluster in the hierarchy. Okay. Oh, come over to my place and let's play some golf. Or I don't know. I've got a boat at the back. Just totally generalizing, but you know what I'm saying. And now, of course, if you, by the way, that's a great idea. The cribs one. That's a really, really good idea. Um, you sort of break all those barriers down, and everyone's welcome to the party, right? Um, to to a large extent. That's nice. Yeah. Um, now, if we don't mind, let's take a look at the other side of the coin because it's. Obviously, there's so many positives to globalization. There's so many conveniences and, yeah. and barriers are getting broken down. But there's also always another side of the story and other impacts. What are some of the downsides that you're seeing for cultures, for countries, for employees around globalization, around the digital uh, um, evolution? What are you seeing also that speaks to the other side of the story? Sure. Um, well, I guess... I guess the big thing, and, and I'm curious your perspective as well, but I think some people don't like working from home. You know, like they, mm-hmm. they, they struggle with the emotional well-being of not being surrounded by people. And we're, we're social people by nature. And some people did get all of their, uh, you know, kind of social interaction and, and, and a lot of their mental wellness and well-being from work. So especially for single people living alone, especially during a pandemic, especially for people who live in cold climates if they can't spend a lot of time outside. I think that has been challenging for some people. Um, other things, I mean, you know, I like some places that have been traditionally really high rent um, urban locations, like people probably don't, companies probably don't care if people are in those locations or not anymore. Salaries there might level out, you know, rather than continually increasing. But on the flip side, I guess rent's going down too, from what my friends have told me. So um, I'm not seeing a ton of downside, but the, I think the mental wellness and, and some of the bonding virtually can be a challenge for people. Mm. How, how's your how's your setup changed in in at globalization partners, or has it changed since the pandemic? You know, it's interesting because you would have thought that we would have been totally remote in the first place, but I guess 
I want, I always wanted people in hub, hub office locations previously. So we were hiring, for example, we have big offices in Boston, San Diego, Mexico City, Galway, Ireland, you know, just various locations with the idea that people should sit side by side for training um, by force. You know, with the pandemic, we had to, we had to shut down our office, actual office location so that to keep people safe. And we've ascertained that going totally remote um, is probably fine. So we haven't formally announced it yet, but it looks like looks like we'll be heading into a into a remote workplace. I will say I believe in work from home, not work from anywhere. You know, some companies have a work from anywhere policy. I personally don't think you can be as productive working from an RV in a national park as you can as you can from a stable home location. So we try to we ask our employees to stay from home. And there's also you know, legal issues, you know, people vagabonding around the globe all the time is, is not my ideal. That's not, that's, unfortunately, I don't think that's a stable employment situation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have a work, we're, we're work. It takes, a, I mean, I, you know, I started, I don't know about you, but I, when I came out of the corporate seven years ago, I was forced to work in a start. I mean, I ran my own startup, multiple startups, and you're forced to work in a virtual environment on the back of a laptop. And uh, you have to sort of find a way to be more mature. Over time, you become a bit more mature with productivity, right? Because being effective with your, you know, with just you and without a team in a virtual environment is not easy. It's really not everyone's ball game. So I think we, I, I think there's a level of empathy in cutting some people slack because it's going to take time for people to go through the transition phases of what it means to be productive without human beings around them constantly. Yeah. Uh, so I do think it's a great economic model. It's probably a good thing to do. There's some benefits, but a lot of support is required because there will be mental strain and stress imminently, um, you know, um, because I do think that's part of it. I, do you feel the same? I mean, is that what you're seeing as well with your people and your wider teams? Yeah. I mean, I think it also depends on the culture. I mean, I, I know like Mexico, our Mexico City team and our India team have told me they really are eager to get back to the office. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure why, but I think it, I think it has to do, some, some people are and some people aren't, but I think it has to do with the, uh, just like they're more used to being more so, even more social than we are, you know, like our India team would sit down to lunch together every day and have tea at four. These yeah. things don't happen in the Boston <laughs> office. You could walk in the office and, and barely talk to people all day. Um, I think what, what people want the ultimately the best thing and, and probably the best thing for everybody is flexibility and kind of honoring the fact that people have been super productive from home. So asking them to go every single day to an office from nine to five is first of all, not health, not necessarily, not, it's not going to be super healthy, healthy for the employee or the, or the employer because the employees don't, aren't going to want to do it. And from the employer's perspective, like who wants to be the least popular employer in the world? It's going to make yeah. companies really hard to improve yeah. because Nobody wants to do something, be told to do something just literally so that eyeballs can be on them all day long. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. Makes yeah. Sense. I've, I have a question that you brought up for me around parity. When we talk about, you made an example that sometimes there's a company, let's say in London, and they want to hire in Eastern Europe because it's going to yeah. be a cheaper labor force. How do you see, do you see parity changing over time? And, and why, what I'm asking about is if I'm, let's say, a skilled worker <clears throat> in, in Turkey, let's say, or somewhere like that and I'm being hired by a company in London, I might say, wait a minute, I get the cost of living is different and you're paying for talent and my talent is as good or if not better than this, the person in London. So how do you see that changing over time with as the world becomes more global in these ways around parity, around salary and, and, and those kinds of things? 
That's a very interesting question. And I think a lot of HR professionals and, and everybody's trying to figure that out. Um, so I would say at this point, um, we are still seeing people use geography as the grounding point for hiring people. But I do think it, in some locations, some, so in highly, uh, highly sought after roles, highly sought after talent. So for example, executives mm -hmm. and um, executives coming from certain companies and also uh, engineers and tech people, I think they're kind of calling the shots these days. And what we are starting to see, we haven't seen it yet, is more technologists saying, look, we want, we want a higher salary. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of engineers and um, like India is known for having a lower cost of uh, talent pool. I know plenty of people paying engineers, you know, uh, what I would call European salaries. And I don't think that's unusual. And I think it's right because there is such a shortage of, of engineering talent. And if those people can get those jobs, they're, they're going to do it. So I guess the question is, is what becomes, you know, what are the jobs of the future that's considered highly talented? So there's obviously technology, obviously executives, that game's already being played. And I think we'll continue to see it played out. Um, and then beyond that, English language skills are, are critical, but they're not scarce at this point. Mm. Do you also have an operation in China or is that a market you don't touch? Yes. You do. Okay. Do you see, and we talk about the East, we talk about the East a lot, uh, East, West and digital a lot. Do you see any, um, what are your observations on the ground between, um, you know, the Eastern markets, Japan, China, India? Uh, what are you seeing post pandemic? Is it sort of similar behaviors? You see response to the employment market being different? What's the, uh, what's the- Actually, it's, it's quite similar. So, so um, when I, when I, now, of course, my viewpoint is high growth, mostly high growth companies that want to hire the best talent in the world, no matter where it sits. Um, and we're seeing that coming out of China too. I mean, China's had a ton of venture capital and private equity capital flow into those headquartered companies. In terms of the local market, you know, I mean, there's tons of small businesses in China too. Um, I think the view of labor is different, you know, from what my Asian colleagues have said, like, you know, European and Northern North American companies really care a lot about company culture. We see that a lot in the high growth professionally managed companies that are backed, you know, simply headquartered and based out of Asia because they have the same issue of wanting to retain people and yeah. build a strong company tech company culture. But um, sometimes they don't care as much, you know, it's not as culturally part of the thing. Mm. It's not yeah. as, as ingrained. Mm. I'm with you. Mm. Interesting. Okay. We have some questions that have come in as well, Rick. Um, should we pick one of them and then um, come back to a few others later? Sure, sure. And this is a good moment where if you're listening live on Facebook, YouTube, uh, on the live <clears throat> Zoom call, wherever you may be in the world in this global conversation, please send in your questions right now that we can ask Nicole around the future of work. So if you have any questions for yourself, for your teams, where things are going, now's the time to ask. So one of our questions coming from Facebook, Nicole, is you talked about the benefits to the international worker, uh, their family, the local economy, et cetera. What are some of the downsides or concerns, ethically or otherwise, that you see when companies are hiring based on cost-cutting measures? Sure. Okay, that's an important question. Um, I'm personally not an advocate of terminating terminating employees in higher cost jurisdictions and, and backfilling with in new locations. Like, I mean, laying people off is a just over cost. I think it's short sighted personally because it's. I mean, I can't speak to every CEO's situation, but basically, 
I think you lose a lot of the ingrained talent, business knowledge, and a, a lot that comes with those people. And it's also just so emotionally draining for the organization. Like I can't even imagine going through that. Um, but I will say, I think that they're, you know, hiring people from scratch. Okay. So maybe you have a high cost jurisdiction. You want to keep those employees, transfer one of those employees to move to a new location and train, hire and train people in a lower cost jurisdiction. I just think like you can have a multiplicative effect without laying off people. Um, like take your highly talented people who have been ingrained in the organization for a long time and leverage their expertise to train people in lower cost jurisdictions. So I think it's just kind of the way companies go about it. I do think hiring people in low cost jurisdictions can be ethical because unfortunately companies who don't think about it in the first place of what is the appropriate cost jurisdiction for the talent we're hiring. So for example, Companies that hired 400 cold callers in San Francisco Bay Area and are paying them $150,000 a year, that was a stupid business decision. You know, pick a lower cost jurisdiction in the first place yep. so that you don't have to fire 400 people later. Mm -hmm. Hire them in, you know, um, Costa Rica or something where it's $20,000 a year, $30,000 a year. And then you have a very scalable organization um, that you don't have to make those ethical decisions later. I guess my viewpoint as a CEO is always to provide good jobs for everyone everywhere. So we try when we offer benefits to people on behalf of our customers, we give them good jobs. You know, like we, we recommend our clients paying at, at a certain percentile. People who speak English in market in these foreign markets, for example, are going to be at the higher end of the pay scale anyway. You know, companies are sometimes surprised because if they look at if they were just to hire an engineer, you know, market research in Mexico would say you can hire an engineer for $13,000. Can you hire a good English speaking engineer for that amount? No. You know, and that doesn't include all the other costs that, that come along for the ride that aren't in that base salary number. Um, but I guess basically it's, it's about being a good ethical employer anywhere the company goes and paying people appropriately for that market. Mm -hmm. My philosophy is to pay people well. And I yep. think that's important. Yeah, I'm appreciating that. And I would imagine you leading the charge out there in the world, that's going to be very important for you to practice what you preach at your own business at Globalization Partners. And I know I've read that in your bio around, you know, it's really important to create an, an environment that employees love to work. And so what are some of the things that you have found been successful in, in your own company, even of creating that kind of culture that people are so engaged in, want to be part of, uh, become your greatest champions for? Yeah, I think I think the um, multiple things. One is uh, respecting people and being grateful for their work, you know, and giving people the chance to shine. So we're not big into telling people how to do things or telling people to act like robots. You know, we try to automate things that things that are just that boring day to day work that that could be done by anyone, and really on letting people unleash their creativity. And we trust our employees, you know. So it's it's about saying, here's the parameters in which you can make decision, but ultimately I trust you, you know, so delegating authority to people to make the right decisions on behalf of the business. I think the tone is super important. We have zero, we did, it's so funny. We had to do a, um, like sexual harassment and, and discrimination training for legal reasons in our Boston office. And I remember this person came in and was training the team. And I was like, oh my God, we don't have this type of behavior here because we would have fired this person. Like if somebody actually acted like this, they would have been out the door day one. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it really is critical to hire the right people and hire people who buy into the vision 
So for example, in hiring uh, country managers in locations that are traditionally more patriarchal, I was very clear to have a conversation with that person before we hired and say, look, you know, you're going to have to hire a diverse team. You know, how, how do you feel about that? Do you support our philosophy around, mm-hmm. around diversity, promoting people equally, regardless of, mm-hmm. of their, um, it's not necessarily race in some countries, but it could be like uh, cer- certain types of status or gender. Mm-hmm. And so just promoting that throughout the organization. So I guess it's ultimately around creating a very human-centric, respectful environment that is efficient and effective without a lot of politics, getting things done and all moving towards a common goal, but appreciating when people do. Fantastic. One more question's come in um, around startups, um, because of course the startup revolution is is reignited again after the pandemic. There's so much money in the markets all over the world, in fact. So um, the question really is, how does a startup use what you do so if they go if they want to go to market in another market another country or another uh, jurisdiction yeah we have a ton of we have a ton of startups i mean i guess it depends how you define startup um you know but i would say most of our most of our customers are professionally backed or venture backed but i guess the main thing is just being able to access talent anywhere you know like to be able to hire that killer engineering team in ukraine or russia or wherever um one benefit of our platform is We've thought through the legal issues. I mean, the mistakes people make when they hire when they hire a team just as contractors or they're not paying attention to the legal requirements, they can make some big mistakes. So, for example, we've seen companies that didn't get their IP on lockdown. So, like, the engineers are creating the IP and, and the company doesn't own it. You know, like, things like that are, like, it can be messy. Um, when, and so I think it's, a, it's more investment upfront to make sure that you have the legal in, infrastructure in place, whether you set it up yourself or you do it through globalization partners. But yeah, because there a lot of startups are using us just to access and leverage talent around the globe. Good. And Excellent. it's either, either hiring good talent anywhere they can find it, or it's, as you mentioned, going into new markets. So the idea of being able to tackle the United States and Europe from day one and hire one or two salespeople everywhere is pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And the economic model around it, because I'm sure people are thinking it sounds fantastic, of course, the model. Um, is there a, uh, you, you don't have to mention it now and you can, we can take the details for what you offer, but is there, a, is the, um, the cost associated with doing this? Because I mean, there's a speed advantage, right? Mm-hmm. I, I guess the, the economic model works in the favor of both parties because it's expensive to do the legals and then you make mistakes and, and so on and so forth. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that if you can, because I sure. think it's, uh, it's then it's- Yeah, I mean, I think it's hugely advantageous to the companies. Um, it, it is, I, I think companies can be surprised, like if they were gonna go set up the legal infrastructure overseas, for example, or they hear, oh, I can hire talent for $5,000 a year in India. Yeah. yeah, but like, come on, you know, is that real? Like, you're going to have to set up a company in India and deal with all this stuff. Um, and so basically, that's not real. Those aren't real numbers. And so, but basically, I think the, the us taking care of all the legal things, us having the international tax issues mostly flow through our company. Um, all the legal, all the HR people on the ground in different countries, all the finance team, time and energy spent and people to manage a global business, like all of that compared to the market opportunity, sometimes lower cost of talent and the much greater market opportunity access, like it is hands down super value add for for the customer. Mm, Got it. Makes sense. Sounds very, very exciting. Okay. We've got another question. Um, Should I take that? 
Go for it. Yeah. Um, you talk. So the questions come from Facebook. So we're we're we're, multi, we're casting on Facebook and uh, and on YouTube simultaneously. So uh, you talked about the cultural differences amongst uh, your different offices. Okay. How do you advise your clients to navigate those differences in terms of expectations on output? Uh, I guess this is related to micromanagement or do this. Um, do you have any juicy crash and burn stories related to cultural adjustments? Okay. I don't know who asked it, but thank Give you. Give us the scoop here, Nicole. <laughs> oh my God, do I ever. I mean, I, I, I would say I could literally write a book on this. And indeed, I, I do have a book coming out in next September. Um, with oh, a big okay. section on the cultural issues, because basically, so at times in my career, I have felt like I am literally a cross-cultural um, coach. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. the big ones would be, the obvious ones would be like the Asian no is so completely radically different than the American version of no. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And we've had times when like in Japan, you know, like just to give you an example, a Japanese accountant will say, oh, you know, that's, that's difficult. What you're asking me to do is difficult. And the American hears, okay, it's, it's going to take a little time and be expensive. And so they respond by email. Okay, tell, you know, tell me what it's, what it's going to take to get it done. And the Japanese accountant would come back and say, oh, very, very difficult. And to him, he's saying, <laughs> no way, lady. Like, you're completely insane. Just forget it. And then the American is like, oh, man, this is going to cost me some money. Um, tell me what it takes to get it done. The Japanese person will stop responding because to them, they've already said no twice. It would be rude to continue saying no. And then the American thinks that, I mean, you know, not responding to email is the American professional crime number one. So like, I'm being professionally ghosted, professionally ghosted. Yes. Right? Yes. And so it's that type of thing. Um, Another one, I mean, I think also, you know, little things, it's so Funny. little, but it's, it's so important. You know, Europeans, like they really care about the relationship first, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And like, if you just lob into an email and you're, and you're um, hey, I need you to do this or that. Okay, you know, am I in trouble? You know, whereas most Europeans, they always say, oh, how are you? How's your family? This situation came up, what da 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 and um, we've actually even internally had to do some cross-cultural, we do a lot of cross-cultural training with our team internally now, because basically the Europeans thought our entire American team were, you know, borderline personality disorder jerks being bossy <laughs> sometimes. And the Europeans were like, oh, am I, you know, what's going on here? Um, that's an extreme, that's an exaggeration because uh, our team gets along really well. But it, it was something that was surfacing that we just had to deal with and explain like just, Talk, and we had a, it was a good, we had a good laugh over it. Yeah. yeah. I'm just appreciating how much you have to know around all the cultural sensitivities around the whole world, how, you know, things in Ecuador are going to be different than Venezuela, um, and et cetera, et cetera. Just all the little cultural nuances that are not so little that you have to keep smart about and how they are changing, um, as, as our world changes also in technology and what have you. Mm -hmm. So just appreciating how much you have to have those people around you, but also for yourself. And that's like a nonstop, you know, information intake with all of that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's, that's the challenge, but it's also the fun and the joy of mm -hmm. this type of work is like how diverse we all are and how, um, how we all interact. And I think we've learned so much as, as Americans, you know, just, mm -hmm. I think knowing yourself, I'm an American, I should say, you know, we are, we are not, I think 70% of our workforce is out of the, outside the United States. Um, but like how much 
we learn from other countries and cultures just by knowing who we are. So a few things about Americans, super direct, you know, time is time's of the essence. And so like when, when we speak, you know, knowing this about myself, it's like, we're straight to the point. We're considered polite if we're super on time and super direct without adding all those niceties. And that can be considered really rude in other, other countries and locations. Knowing that other people perceive that, we actually um, hired a, a community manager in our Boston office uh, before the pandemic. Her job was literally to take some of the hospitality that we learned from our India and Mexico offices and, and Middle East offices and bring that to the United States. It was go pick people up at the airport, walk them to their hotel, make sure there's food waiting for them in their room, you know, go to the hotel the next morning and walk them to the office and introduce them around to the team, figure out who they're having lunch with, because that type of thing is really important. And we were just so amazed by the generosity of hospitality and spirit that we, we Americans were greeted with around the globe. Whereas Americans thought we were being hospitable to say, oh, there's a really good taco stand down the street you should check out after work. It's just, and it's not wrong. It's just very different. And so we were like, wait, we want to show the love to our team members because we're excited we're here. And we learned a lot about that from how to best do that. Yeah. So it goes every direction, learning and giving. It's quite interesting. One of, one of the other observations is, is the relationship between home and work. Uh, and in different countries in America, it's very different to uh, Asia, for example. Home and home and work are intertwined, um, and working hours aren't the same because you start a little bit later and you have your four o'clock chai with your mates uh, in India for sure. I mean, that's like part of the culture. And you know, in the states, we're like, shit, I gotta, I gotta go. I've got to leave at five o'clock. It's time to go. And you've got a bam, 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 productive day. And then you've got home life, and you pick up the kids and you have some time with the kids and then you go to sleep by whatever time. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, the cultural differences are fascinating. I do think that the work that you're doing uh, from an employment standpoint uh, has, um, I'd love to see what your book's on actually. And so when you do release it, tell us all about it. We'll, we'll, we'll post it out to our, our crew and our community. But I do think the, there is so much more that um, the work you're doing is actually enabling, which is, um, especially after the pandemic, which is this massive opportunity to change the way people look at each other. And it talks to some of your points earlier on, but it is quite a serious issue because the world is divided. Populism is rising. The world is actually, it's getting more divided. Uh, and we're not in the best place, not in the best health, at least in terms of our polit political views, so much dichotomy and uh, bipolar thinking. And I think, you know, Straight Talk Life was born to bring people together. It wasn't born to divide. It was born to unify. And unification is hard work. Div division is easy. Um, and so what you're doing is actually creating some form of collaboration, unification. So we, we admire that, of course, and would like to continue to support it. And we'll track your journey. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe you can help a lot of our community members as well, big companies and small companies, perhaps. We'd love to. You know. Um, with Rick, that, uh, I, yeah, well, I'm just dying to know, yeah. um, what can you share about your upcoming book? Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it's basically a how-to guide of how to, how to go global, you know, like where to, where to find great talent. Um, it's, it's a very practical how-to guide from where to find talent, some of the cultural issues, some of the nuances in different countries. Um, it's as much information as I could pack into one book of just having spent 20 years taking companies global in a, in a tactical way, but also some of the I'd say a lot of tactical, but also some of the mm. um, just more nuanced cultural stuff. 
um, that I think is helpful to know as well. Mm. So this is going global in a virtual world now. It's called Global Talent Unleashed. And you guys are the first person I've actually spoken to publicly. Oh, right. so cool. And is it yeah. this September or next September? This September. This September. Yeah, about six months from now. Straight Talk Livers, you heard it here first. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I hope it's I hope it's a good, easy read too. And that anyone who any executive who's taking a company global, I think I think it will I think it would be helpful for anybody. Fabulous. Fabulous. We expect a signed copy, please. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And, and I just want to summarize, uh, I'm just appreciating what, what I appreciate about this conversation is, and this is also true in my own life experience of working, living, traveling abroad in many different countries, is just how when you get exposed to all the different um, diversity um, uh, perspectives and cultures that are out there, you really start to get clear about human values and human characteristics and what's really underneath all of that that we're really all wanting we're all really wanting a lot of the same things at the end of the day around a healthy family a healthy work life um something that we're a sense of meaning and purpose that we're engaged in mm -hmm. and um, i just see what you're doing and a lot of um related technologies and companies are really i think evening the playing field in some healthy ways and really trying to help that talent be um recognized and come forward and given opportunities to a lot of new people who wouldn't have had that otherwise. Mm. Thank you. So I really appreciate what you're doing here in um, leading the cause in your way. And Nicole, just out of curiosity, where can people find out more about you and your work? Where should they go? Sure. So uh, globalization-partners.com would be our company website. And uh, in terms of me, I mean, I'm just on LinkedIn and, and a normal social media profile. People could... Uh, I think people could Google me and, and come up with other other podcasts and videos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. And of course, your new book is coming out. And say the title one more time. Uh, Global Talent Unleashed. It's an executive's guide Talent to going global. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Thank and you, do you have man. any do you have any final words for our global audience? Um, yes, I think that uh, the more the more jobs that we have around the world in the United States in any country and around the world, the better off we all are and the work that we do to uh, create and collaborate among cultures, whether those cultures are domestic or international, does indeed fit into the thing that you guys are talking about uniting, not dividing. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a there's a there's amazing people all over the world that are can be found, you know, brilliant, bright, talented, great people all over the world. And I think there's so much more good in the world than bad. And tapping into that diversity is, mm. is part of the joys of being part of this generation. Mm. Wonderful. Love it. That's a powerful note to end on. Nicole, thank you. thank you so much for your wisdom, your perspective, uh, your passion, all, the, all that you do. Really appreciate it having you here on Straight Talk Live. Thanks so much, guys. It was a pleasure to be here. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And just uh, really quick for our episode, we're actually not going to be on the air next week. Uh, we get spring break too, so we're going to take next week off. Um, but in two weeks, we're actually, it's our one-year anniversary of Straight Talk Live. So it's a very special episode. We want you to join us. It also is Earth Day. So it's April 22nd, and we have uh, some amazing panel of young uh, youth activists who are really making a difference in climate change from around the world. It's going to be a power-packed hour so please join us. Um, you're going to be hearing some very inspirational, real-world stories that are happening right now. Uh, so please join us for our year anniversary special two weeks from now on the 22nd of April. Okay. 
thank you all again. And all the straight talkers out there, go keep straight talking to those people around you and um, keep it real. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.